The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have The Normal with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam talking about the news that you don't know, but that you should. And then I have a conversation with Terry Crews to talk about Hollywood, about Me Too, and about what's next for him. I learned so much in that conversation. And before we jump in, the only word that I have this week, or I have two things actually to say this week. One is a big shout out and congratulations to our Brittany, Brittany Packnett, who has been named a fellow at the Harvard Institute on Politics. You see her online, shout her out because she is the bomb.com. The other thing is my book comes out next week. You can pre-order it now at deray.com. You know, this is a collection of the most important stories and lessons that I've learned over the years that I wanted to share, both reflecting on where I've been and sort of thoughts about where I, where I think we should go. Make sure that you get a ticket to see uh, the conversations that are going to happen around the book as we travel the country. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Siangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. Happy belated birthday, Clint. You are officially in your 30s. Welcome to this side of awesome. <laughs> yes, I'm 30. And one of my cousins texted me and was like, your 20s are for your grow up, but your 30s are for your glow up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you want to know who did not feel that kind of love this weekend, or actually maybe they felt too much love was uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce because a fan ran on stage at their first Atlanta show. Did you all see that video? That video was bananas. Did see it. I was like, what? But the dancers, they like bossed up like the Dora Milaje. They were ready. Do you understand me? They <laughs> ran back there after him. They were like, we, we'll get to him before the security does. And we will not allow anything to happen to the king and queen. That's not going to happen. It was wild. I'd never seen anything like it. But certainly the dancers were ready. And those are the kind of friends I want. People who are just ready. It was also like, I think the true like material manifestation of the beehive because it was just like you could see the dude get on stage and all the dancers kind of they like looked and then they looked at each other and, and then, then they he swarmed kept going, like chasing them to the back <laughs> and then they just swarmed it was like whoosh and i was like oh snap like you say we all need some ride or die folks like that so my news is about the nationwide prison strike that's been taking place since this past monday across the country this is the largest prison strike in history according to reports and prisoners have organized uh, from within the prisons, which is quite hard to do and in, in a feat of organizing this nationwide prison strike that's been underway for about a week now. And they've released a list of 10 demands. And the demands range from repealing the Truth and Sentencing Act and Sentencing Reform Act, which requires uh, folks to serve a 
particular portion of their prison term, whether it's 85% or 90%, and not be able to get let out early for good behavior and parole. It also calls for repealing gang enhancements, which often target black and brown people. It calls for restoring voting rights to people who are currently serving time and who have completed their sentence. And it calls for an immediate end to prison slavery, uh, and that all persons in prison in any place of detention in the U.S. must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. And, you know, we see a prison labor strike being used here. We've seen it used in the past, the strategy. Uh, and we hear about this sort of in passing. But just to give you a sense of the scale of this issue in particular, uh, there are 1.5 million people imprisoned in state or federal correctional facilities across the country. About 60% of them, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, Census of Correctional Facilities, about 60% of them uh, are currently working uh, and an average about 30 hours a week. And they work for almost nothing, and in some states, nothing at all. Uh, so in most states, the average is uh, under a dollar, between about 14 cents an hour and 63 cents an hour for work. A small proportion of incarcerated folks work in what they call industry jobs, which are paid slightly more, about a dollar an hour. And those are the ones where you're making license plates or doing agriculture and producing products that tend to be sold, or you have call center operators. In California, there are firefighters uh, risking their lives for $2 a day. But most folks who are incarcerated are doing work actually maintaining the prison itself. So working in the kitchens, cleaning the prison, uh, all of those types of things. Uh, and this is something that has been going on since slavery. Uh, but suffice to say that uh, the states that still require prisoners to work for free, uh, that force them to work and do not pay anything, are uh, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Texas, and South Carolina. Those are states where 90% or more of uh, incarcerated workers are forced to work for free. Uh, and that's not a coincidence that it's those states, those are all Confederate states. And it has been like that since uh, emancipation when prisons were used as a strategy to uh, reproduce uh, the forced and enslaved workforce uh, that had recently been emancipated by allowing people to be compelled to work uh, after they had been convicted of a crime. And so, you know, that is sort of an overview of what's been going on. I would encourage folks who are interested in getting involved to follow jailhouse lawyers speak and also to be pushing at your state level. This is really where many of these changes need to take place. Push your, your governor, your state legislators to pass laws that raise the wage for incarcerated workers, that eliminate that work requirement, which almost every state has, uh, and implement the remainder of these demands around sentencing reform and restoration of voting rights. This is such a critically important act. Clint, I know you've spoken before about just how incredibly brave this act is. Um, and I want us to recognize that we talk all the time in social justice spaces about movements being led by the people who are most affected by an injustice. And this is a pure and clear model of that. This prison strike is being led by people who are themselves incarcerated and their families, the people who are most proximate to the injustices that are going on, and they are doing so at incredible risk. Um, they risk permanent solitary confinement. They risk a great deal of violence on behalf of the state and people who control that prison. And so there is an inordinate amount of courage that these folks are showing to make sure that there is justice inside of these walls. Um, and I think we really can't take that for granted. And already we've seen a victory. We know that the Texas state prison system 
system voted last week to slash the cost of inmate calls um, to their homes by more than 75%. So the average across the state was 26 cents per minute, uh, and they brought it down to six cents per minute. And again, to your point, Sam, if someone is making a dollar an hour, 26 cents per minute just to call home is absolutely unacceptable. I still think six cents a minute is quite high, and yet we can see already just how drastic the changes are that are possible because of the work that's being done here. I also want to remind everyone that this is part of the reason why it's critically important to restore the voting rights of people who were once incarcerated but have returned to society. Um, We know that perspective matters. And when we are missing perspective at the ballot box, in the electoral process, uh, and in more places where citizens need to be heard, then we are losing out on the kind of solutions that need to be had. Brittany, I'm really glad you brought this up, and specifically the part about Texas, because it's really an example of the sort of concrete policies that are that are moving and that are changing, in part because we are in a moment in which the discourse around incarceration and punishment is shifting dramatically. And I think, you know, so so what's happening in Texas is important because, you know, all of the, the social science tells us how essential it is that people in prison are able to communicate at low costs, and hopefully at some point at no cost with their loved ones, because one of the most important things that you can do in terms of reducing recidivism is ensuring that people maintain close relationships with people on the outside so that when they're released, as 95% of people who are incarcerated eventually are, uh, they're able to to go back into society with the support system that has been maintained and cultivated during their time on the inside. But I think the, the broader thing to keep in mind around this prison strike is that prisons are predicated on social isolation. They are predicated on secrecy. They are predicated on a sort of opaqueness and a purposeful opaqueness, right? It is intentionally made so that we are not necessarily aware of what is going on and that prisoners similarly are not aware of what is going on in different prisons. And so it, it will always be difficult to measure in, in sort of quantitative metrics how many people are participating in this strike. Uh, and I think important to keep in mind is that protests, as, as we all know, can look a lot of different ways. And so there are subtle means of subverting the system, such as refusing to spend money at the commissary, which like sort of economically, you know, helps to maintain even in a small way, the legitimacy of a system that, you know, charges you an inordinate amount for snacks or for things that you use in the bathroom that would cost far less outside of prison. But but I say all this to say that the metrics of success for prison strikes are very difficult to measure. But but I think in many ways that this prison strike has been successful already, because it has shifted uh, and reinvigorated a sort of public conversation around the role that prison should or should not play in our society and and sort of laser focused on the myriad forms of violence that prisons continue to inflict on people. So so I think, you know, only a few days in to this strike, it's already been successful in a lot of ways. And, and I think that we should reject any discourse that would suggest that the prison strike is not or or has not been successful. Sam, thanks for bringing this up. You know, I'd seen the prison strike on social media. I posted the demands. But in preparation for our conversation today, I looked deeper at the demands and demand number three, I believe, was one that I just hadn't I didn't know much about. And demand number three says the Prison Litigation Reform Act must be rescinded, allowing imprisoned humans a proper channel to address grievances and violations of their rights. Now, what the Prison Litigation Reform Act does, it was passed in 1996, is that it makes it almost impossible for prisoners to file lawsuits in federal court. And it does it by a couple ways. One is that it requires an exhaustion of all administrative remedies, which sort of sounds like it makes sense on the surface. But what it means in practice 
is that inmates have to exhaust like every single internal process before they can file a lawsuit. So they have to file a grievance at the prison. They have to go through every step of the grievance. They have to like make sure they fill out the forms and da da da. And again, that seems sort of reasonable. You're like, of course, like they, there's a process inside the prison. Well, here's the thing is that prisons are notorious for not really having anything accessible for people. So there are scenarios where uh, people have gone to file complaints and guess what? There are no more forms to file complaints on or you filed a complaint and it magically went missing. And there's actually no remedy set forth in the law for those sort of scenarios. So what you find is that people just can't like they actually can't file complaints in a way that actually makes sense. But not going through the administrative process precludes them from being able to file a lawsuit. The second is that the Litigation Reform Act also comes with a heavy sense of fees for people who are filing complaints. And there are a couple of other uh, provisions in it that make it almost impossible. So when I when I read this as one of the demands, uh, it actually pushed me to do more work and think about the ways that the system actually bears down on people so that they can't be heard. So the demands really pushed me to think. So there was a big New York Times magazine story a couple of weeks ago at this point about climate change. And what it does is it helps me understand that like one of the most difficult things about keeping people invigorated about climate change is that for all the work we do, even if it's 100% successful, we wouldn't see the benefits of that work for decades. And that obviously isn't to say that we shouldn't continue to work at that because, you know, that's extremely vital and we have to play the long game. But what our friend Van Newkirk has written about recently at The Atlantic is that what we see from, you know, Hurricane Harvey or Irma or Maria is that over the past year, you know, the suffering that's caused by the environment changing isn't distributed equally. And, you know, whether it be the folks in Puerto Rico who still face uncertain medical care and unstable electricity because of Hurricane Maria, or whether it's black and Latino communities, you know, who don't have access to the same dialysis services in Houston following Hurricane Harvey, like it's continuously the most vulnerable populations that are already in trouble. But what's happening in response to that is that starting this week or starting this past week, there's more than a dozen local environmental groups from across the country who started the what's called the Freedom to Breathe Tour. And this is where journalists and activists and environmental justice experts present vulnerable communities with the case for swift and dramatic action on climate change. And it's this 21-day tour started on August 25th and just uses it as a means to sort of illustrate the the urgency of this moment. You know, I'm born and raised in New Orleans, as a lot of folks know, and Hurricane Katrina came my senior year of high school and washed away our home. You know, we had 10 feet of water in our house. And at that moment, you know, I was 17 years old and I wasn't able to understand what Katrina was as a manifestation of climate change in the way that I think I'm able to understand it now. But uh, I think as, as we gain the sort of toolkit with which to better understand how what is happening in our world is directly a result of things happening in the climate and how climate change continues to affect the most vulnerable populations throughout the world. I'm excited to see uh, what comes from this Freedom to Breathe tour and, and just generally want us to all be a part of sort of reframing the conversation that like climate change is a problem for all of us, but it is mostly a problem and most directly a problem for, for black, brown and poor communities. You know, Clint, I'm really glad you brought this up because actually my news is related to this theme of environmental justice. In particular, there is a study that recently came out that examines how the racial wealth gap actually increases 
for people who have suffered from natural disasters. So hurricanes, like the ones that your family suffered through, like Harvey, um, like Maria, um, droughts, um, wildfires, and other natural disasters certainly cost the country a lot of money um, in recovery. But the way in which people are able to recover and the amount to which people are able to recover actually differs along lines of race. And so researchers uh, at the University of Pittsburgh and Rice University followed 3,500 families between 1999 and 2013. And what they looked at essentially was how well any of those folks recovered. What they found was actually quite startling. Here were two critical discoveries from that study. The first is that in counties that experienced at least $10 billion in damage or more, white people actually increased their wealth in the recovery phase, an average of $126,000. Black wealth decreased in that same amount of time by $27,000, Asian wealth by $10,000, and Latinx wealth by $29,000, thereby increasing the racial wealth gap as white people accumulated more wealth and people of color actually lost wealth. The other thing that we know from this study is that In counties that received the greatest amounts of uh, FEMA money, FEMA recovery money, that they also experienced the greatest increase in their wealth gaps. And that sounds counterintuitive because you would think that the places that got the most federal aid would actually um, have the smallest racial wealth gaps. And that's simply not the case, both at the individual level and at the municipal level, because a county or a municipality is actually able to request that aid in the same way that individuals are. Um, And those things are simply not given out equally across communities. um, And therefore, it's causing a greater racial wealth gap, even when you've got a lot of FEMA aid coming into a community. So this reminds me of the financial crisis where white wealth was sort of marginally impacted, but then recovered very quickly while black and brown wealth still hasn't recovered to where it was. And I think that the second point that you made, Brittany, about the inequitable distribution of FEMA aid helps explain at least part of where those inequities come from, right? So not only are black and brown communities often uh, most vulnerable to these types of disasters, whether sort of economic or Uh, environmental, uh, because we have fewer resources to deal with them and protect ourselves, but also the response that the system has, uh, those resources are often spent in ways that also reinforce existing uh, racial inequities. And so white folks get more aid, uh, they get more assistance, they're closer in proximity to receive and apply for and access those resources often. uh, And so they're able to recover more quickly. Uh, Whereas black and brown communities are often marginalized, not only in the first place, uh, where they're more vulnerable to disaster, but also in the aftermath. You know, this makes me think of both of your news, Clint and Brittany, is one of the best things I heard recently, somebody was like, we should stop asking people if they uh, believe in climate change and start asking them if they understand it. There's not the like, I don't believe in it. That's not a legitimate state to be in. That made a lot of sense. And I almost brought as my news this week, the way that there are a lot of prisons constructed on, on grounds that are environmental dumps or wastelands and like what that actually means for the people uh, who are incarcerated. I was reading this one story of a prison that the land it was on was so toxic that the uh, correction officers used to bring in water for their dogs even. Like they wouldn't even let the animals 
drink from the faucets, but the inmate had to. And it was like, it just, I've, I've learned so much more about the way environmental racism, like, plays into so much of this stuff. And, and thinking, too, about the environment is not like an abstract thing. The environment is something that we interact with every day. So to think about justice in these isolated forms, it just doesn't do right by this understanding that all of this is interconnected. And we have to keep in mind as this is happening that there are imprisoned people in California who are expected to help quell the wildfires that have been happening there and then won't even be eligible to become firefighters once they are released and are returning citizens. We have to recognize the fact that the federal government, for all intents and purposes, actually hid from us the amount of people who were actually killed by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. We know that the number is at least 1,400 now, um, and it could be higher, and they are still not receiving the kind of aid that they should be. So even as we talk about this research in the past tense and what they discovered um, in years prior, that environmental injustice, to your point, Clint, is still happening every single day. I think you bring up a really interesting thing that reminds us about the intersections of all of the news that we've shared so far, right? I think about how during Katrina, the folks who were in the prisons in New Orleans were either shot or, or left to, to die or uh, completely mistreated if, if they were, had the opportunity to get out uh, at all. And, and so I'm thinking about the conversation around prison and the conversation around prison labor and the conversation around environmental justice, like all of these things are deeply interconnected in ways that are evident every single day. And, and I didn't even put it together until we all sort of started talking about our news. But, but I think that's another important thing for, for folks to remember is the way that all of these different uh, systems continue to interact with one another. So I've been following some of the work requirements laws around the country, and I realized that I hadn't really thought about the implementation all that much, that like, I knew that there were states ramping up the work requirements, but the question of, like, how do the states plan to monitor whether people are working or not? I don't know. I just hadn't really thought about that until I read about Arkansas. And what Arkansas is planning to do or has rolled out already is that all the recipients of Medicaid who are able to work will have to log 80 working hours each month or risk losing their access to health care. Now, you might ask, like I asked, how do they log the 80 hours of work? Well, in Arkansas, they actually have to do it online. And the online website closes at 9 p.m. I didn't even know you closed websites. But even more ridiculous is that in Arkansas, it actually is ranked 48th out of 50 for Internet access. So there are huge swaths of the state that like even with the best plan and whatever like the internet service is actually pretty shoddy and according to broadband now 30 percent of the state's population has access to fewer than two internet providers and an estimated 20 percent have only a smartphone for internet access at home and it's a state where 17 percent of residents live below the poverty line so the work requirement in and of itself is is like not productive has no basis in fact doesn't make people find jobs better has no positive impact at all but even while there is at the implementation of it, there's no justification besides just tripping people up. Uh, they've started to roll these out in phases. So uh, in the first cohort, about 7,000 people failed to report their working hours. That was 72% of the people in the first cohort. And then in the second month, that was the first month, in the second month, 5,400 people uh, failed again. So it's like, you know, people know they got to do it, but even 
the people who are trying, it seems like they can't even log their work hours. And again, the government in Arkansas is like, you know, this will make people work harder. This is going to be good for the, you know, this is good for the economy. You know, people need to prove that they can work. But it's like you are actually making it almost impossible for people to even comply if they wanted it to. So I wanted to bring that here because it, to me, is a reminder of the implementation, like the, the devil's in the details. And not only work requirements, just they don't make sense at a policy level, but I hadn't even thought about the way the implementation works. One of the things that really shocked me reading this was that they don't allow you to submit this report after 9 p.m. So it's like a website. It's online. There's no reason to impose this 9 p.m. restriction. And this reminds me that you know more and more we're seeing governments, you know, whether it's local, state, or federal, start to use online interfaces to make it easier, quote unquote, for people to access information, to find healthcare plans, to do all kinds of things uh, now that we couldn't do online voter registration. Uh, but because that becomes so central now to how we're accessing resources, including critical resources we need from the government, the ways in which those websites are designed and implemented matter a whole lot in terms of our own access to those resources. And so if you don't have access to the internet, first of all, it's much harder for you. Uh, if you even if you have access to the internet, if they design the website to close at 9pm, then you still don't have a lot of access to it if you're working through 9pm. Uh, and this reminds me of uh, actually Florida, where recently we found out that the voter registration portal, the online voter registration portal uh, was broken. It's one of many states that's implemented online voter registration uh, and their website where people, there was a huge rush for people to register to vote because the deadline was coming up for this primary, uh, which is happening in a couple days in Florida. And the website was broken. And so, you know, we had folks trying to sign up and register to vote. They couldn't do it. 10 folks, 12 folks, 15 folks. Uh, and eventually we contacted the state. The state said, you know, everything was fine and there was nothing to worry about. Finally, we had to record a video of the site being broken, right? Somebody trying to register to vote and it not working for them to actually change the site and allow people to register to vote online in Florida at the deadline pretty much for you to register to be able to vote in the primary at all. So it's just an example that this is happening all over the place uh, in the ways in which these websites are being designed, whether it is through neglect or more intentional, but they're actually not being implemented in ways that allow people to access them uh, as was sort of, I guess, the goal in creating an online interface in the first place. You know, they say the only thing constant in the world is change. Um, and as we become a more modern society, as more things move online, as more things are technology-based, we have to recognize that change is not always good if progress leaves you behind. If we are not ensuring access to new technologies, to broadband internet, to the sites and the functions that people will need in the future, then that progress is not actually good. Um, that progress only works for some of us and not all of us. You know, all the time when I'm in the grocery store, I try as much as I possibly can to make sure that I'm actually going to a cashier instead of a self-checkout. Um, it is my quiet little personal protest to help support people's job security because people depend on those wages. If you can turn everything over to a computer, then you're leaving people out. The same thing works here. It's wonderful to say we're streamlining this, we're making this more modern, we're moving everything online. But if the very people who need those services can't access the website and can't actually do the reporting that they need to do through the internet, then you are cutting people off from the very things that they need to survive. Yes, the only thing constant in the world is change, but we need to make sure that change is moving at a pace and in ways that include everybody. 
Yeah, and I think the essence of it and, and the simplest thing about this is that like a quarter of Americans have no broadband at all. And I think those of us who have the internet in our homes can take for granted the extent to which it is an enormous privilege and remains an enormous privilege and that 25% of the people in this country don't have uh, access to it in their homes, as this article talks about, um, and only have it on their smartphones. And there's a limited amount of things you can do on your phone that that's either easier on your laptop or not possible via a mobile device. But like, if you're going to make the internet the sort of central fixture of how the government implements these essential programs, right? Not like these are these programs aren't just like peripheral. These are central to people being able to survive like every single day. If you were going to make those central to how the government operates, then you have to make sure that you are simultaneously implementing uh, the programs and the training and the access that makes sure that people are not going to be sort of siphoned out of the system, um, either on purpose or, or by accident, uh, because the, the transition happened in a way that uh, doesn't allow them to, to take part in it. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. 
it's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite, by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com streaming. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you've done, you've spoken so much about uh, sexual harassment, about Me Too, but I wanted to start sort of earlier than that, is that you are from Flint. Yeah, born and raised, man, all, the whole time. Born in 1968 and left when I was, what, 17 and a half. <laughs> are you shocked by the by the allegations in the in the discovery of the lid in the water, how was your experience growing up in Flint? What's your relationship with Flint now? Oh, I'm not shocked at all. You know, it was a lot of you know crazy things going on with the the auto industry was just falling, and then the crack epidemic hit the city at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it, you're talking about a nuclear bomb and. You know, there's a lot of corruption. You know, it was like people saw the city was falling and doing their thing, so people were grabbing what they could get and and leaving. You know, it, it was just a a really dark time. I just remember knowing I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And when the water thing happened, the whole controversy was happening because there were actual ads that were telling people that the water was safe. Wow. And uh, oh, I mean, when you just look at like, wait, you would spend money on the ads the whole marketing campaign, but you wouldn't spend money on actually fixing the problem. It makes my stomach hurt to think about even now. And uh, Do you, you know, remember I, the before and after of the crack epidemic? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. First of all, when I was a kid, Flint, Michigan was Palo Alto. See, wow. People have to, I, I really have to give you that image because when you went to Flint, I mean, it was all the people that migrated from the south up to up to the factories, you were given, you, I mean, people were getting $3,000 bonuses for Christmas in 1978. You know, like, that's crazy. That's like, you know, that's 10 grand now, you know, 10, 15 grand now, you know. People were making money hand over fist. You were guaranteed a house, guaranteed a brand new car, guaranteed a lifestyle that you never knew in the South, which my father was from, uh, from Georgia. And, when we were little, I mean, it, it was like promising. We were on our way. I remember because what would happen is everybody would live in one house. Mm-hmm. You know, the family members would all live in one house. And as everyone got jobs in the factory, they would move out and get their own thing. And we that's what happened with us. And I remember everybody was really hopeful and it was really great. And my father finally started working, became a foreman. And, and I remember our life somewhat started to improve. I remember things were we were in a real, you know, ratty place. And I remember we were actually watch the mice get into the traps. That was our game. And I remember wow. being six years old, like watching mice get snapped up. You know, it was like, and we're like, yeah, you know, as a kid, you don't know you're broke. You're like, this is fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, people, you talk about being poor, poor, but not sad, you know? 
Not right. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, man, this stick is the best stick ever. You know, <laughs> this stick can be a gun. It can be a golf club. It can be a bat. You know, and you're like, you, you play with a stick because that's all you got. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, I remember seeing things that were going really well. And then all of a sudden, I remember around 10 or 11, you know, things started to twist. Uh, it was with the gas crisis. People were panicking over, you know, the gas guzzling cars and this and this and and people just it started to change and when it changed man it changed fast my whole experience my all my teen years were a panic it was it was like the walking dead and watching whole neighborhoods that i knew totally become raised my high school is a field i, I all my memories i go back to flint michigan i really have to conjure up my imagination just to know where i am because wow. there's nothing standing you publicly went forward about being sexually assaulted by an agent at WME. Yes. And still, you're one of the only men who has come out, who is a celebrity, who's used their platform to talk about these issues. Do you remember that like conversation where you were like, okay, I think I'm going to call somebody and tell them this happened? Well, it wasn't a conversation. What it was was 16 tweets. You know, I put these tweets out. and But I was sitting on set waiting for to film on Brooklyn Nine-Nine talking to my castmates. Hmm. And what, what, what came up was the Harvey Weinstein uh, article had just come out about three, four days earlier. And it was just taking over the news. And they were like, this is messed up. How could they do that? Oh, this Harvey Weinstein thing. And I, was, I looked over. I remember looking at Joe, Joe Latrulio, and I was like, dude, this happened to me, man. Oh, and he wow. was like, What? And I was like, and then I described exactly how it went down and how I went out with my wife and the whole thing. And this guy just runs up, he's sticking his tongue out and the whole thing. And he just grabs my genitals and I push him back. And I'm like, hey, man, get off me. And he comes back again. And he was flipping. I was like, dude, this this Hollywood is nuts. The fact that they think that just because you're here and just because you want a career, that this is par for the course. Right. And that was the whole conversation I had about Harvey Weinstein, but I brought it up with me. And then the next day we were on set again and I could not stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop. It was once I kind of let that cat out of the bag, because it was one of those things where you talking to your castmates and, you know, the, the everyone was like, man, that's messed up and this and this. And I never told anyone that I was going to say anything. OK, I didn't even tell my wife. I mean, no one knew. She found out on Twitter, too. You know, she found out when I came home. <laughs> what was so crazy? I said, babe, you been on Twitter? She was like, no. What, why? What? I was like, sit, are you sitting down? I said, down. I said, I got something to tell you. And she was like, what? I said, Hollywood is over. I literally, that was the first thing I told her. I said, I don't think we're going to work again. Oh, wow. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I said, I, I told what happened. I told what happened with Adam Bennett. And she was like, oh, my God. You did. I was like, and I told everybody. You from, uh, from oh, she was there. She was, she was there. My wife was there with me when it happened. You know what I mean? So we both knew about it. You know, she was witness. She, I grabbed her hand and we went out of the club and went into the car and sat there. And I was like, I was about to literally get back in the club. And she was like, Terry, Terry. And I remember holding the steering wheel and grabbing the steering wheel as hard as I could. I, I, this is one of those memories that's like in day glow, you know, because right. I felt like I could rip the steering wheel off. And she was like, I'm proud of you, Terry. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. And she just kept saying it 
to kind of calm me down because she was she really was always the one telling me that you have cannot be violent. You know, if people are going to push you, they're going to prod you, they're going to try to take you places you don't want to go. You have to be smarter. You must think, think, because, you know, this is the thing. I mean, we saw Trayvon Martin. We saw. You know, there was murders happening all the time in the news about big black guys doing something that just walking places. And all of a sudden it will stand your ground. You know what I mean? And it's like she knew I would never get a chance ever. You know, looking at little Trayvon, he's just a kid. This is a child. And they felt like he deserved it. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? What do you think they're going to have any mercy on me? If I hit this guy or knock him out just because he molested me, and, or who would believe me? And that's what I put in the tweets. The whole point was, you know, if, if it came out like, wow, Terry Crews knocks out this agent, God forbid he died or anything or, or got really, really injured, who would, he could have said, man, I was just walking, I bumped into him by mistake, and Terry Crews just went off on me. You know what I mean? And um, that's, you know what's so wild is that. I know how close I came to losing everything. Not not just Hollywood, like jail. Right. I mean, M- William Morris let me know that they would have had no mercy on me. None. I would have gotten everything. I would have been in jail. I would have had. And this is one thing I tell a lot of people that, you know, even I filed this lawsuit because this is money I was going to be spending anyway right. to defend myself. Right. Can you imagine? I would have been broke and, in, in the eyes of the world, a, a guilty man for, for just swinging on this guy. This poor this poor little agent and you giant big Terry Crews, you should have known better. Can you explain the lawsuit for people that don't know? Yes. I, I You know, my criminal case was thrown out um, by the DA and uh, because of the statute of limitations um what they said was it's a in California, it's a um, sexual assault is ranked in regards to felony and misdemeanor. And it was ranked as a misdemeanor because he groped me through my clothing. It didn't, didn't deny that it happened. It was just I had clothes on. Um, so if you do that to anyone with clothes on, it's just a misdemeanor. Um so, which was shocking to everyone because I thought, oh, my God. And it's two years on a felony action. So, it was thrown out. But I I decided to, to file a civil case um, simply because, you know, this is unacceptable. It's beyond unacceptable. And everyone, everyone from the agency to even there were certain people, you know, in, in my community, other actors, they were like, look, man, just accept the fact that you are less than a human being. (laughs) And I was like, no, no, I will never accept the fact that I'm less than anyone and less than this person. And William Morris literally wanted me to sign off and say, hey, man, come on, we didn't do, they basically said that I, you know, it was horseplay and they did me no harm and it should just be thrown out. And I was like, wow, wow. What have you learned about the system that you didn't know before you went public that you know now? Dude, it's a complicit system. See, I still pay William Morris 10% of my income. Hmm. I I am paying them to litigate against me. 
Because the you way can't, con- you can't switch agents, you I, can't like go to I CA did. or I switched agents. No, no, I was gone. But anything they negotiate for you, oh, right? When the system it works in their favor, when everyone is just like, well, we're gonna look the other way because we gotta pay them anyway. It's it, it's you gotta follow the money. I want to ask you about Brooklyn Nine Nine. You play, yes. you know, I spend most of my time working on issues of police violence, and you play a police officer. What is it like to be on a show where the police, they are the narrative, right? in a moment where the narrative about the police is, you know, the police are killing a lot of people, and yeah. that is real. So what is it like to be in a show where the police are just being portrayed in a different way than they're necessarily being portrayed in the public? Yeah. Oh, man. You know, it, it was uh, we we were in danger for a minute of becoming a cartoon, you know? And uh, the great thing about our our writers and our showrunner and our cast is that you know they were like we need to address this we need to address this and in the fourth season we did an episode called Mumu where uh, my character was racially profiled in his own neighborhood and I being a cop had to face up against another cop who basically was like hey man if if I knew you were a cop I wouldn't have done it but it's like but that's not the point and and one of the best best uh, examples, I think, uh, I think it was one of the best scenes to me that really really highlight this thing was a scene between Andre Brower and I, two black men, two black cops, talking, having a difference of approach because he was like, "Hey man, look, just don't report this. Go through the system and change it from the top. You know, once you get to a good spot." then you can change it from there. And my argument was like, but how long will that take? I said, we got to do this now. And I was trying to get a promotion and the whole thing. And and I ended up reporting a guy and I lost my promotion. Hmm. You had the reality TV show. That seems like such a departure from all the other, like the scripted things that you've done. How was that? Especially given the healing that had to happen with the family and all that stuff. How was it like to film a show with your family on it? You know, it was wild. We, the first season was pre-Meltdown. Oh. The second season was post. Interesting. Rebecca leaving. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was that was crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And look, we re- now renewed our vows on the first season. You know what I mean? And there were things I hadn't told her. Hmm. I had a desire to be this good dad, great husband. And once you desire that, all of a sudden... Things are going to call you on that. You, you know what I mean? Like when you start talking about, well, we need to do this. Well, first of all, people are going to check and see if you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And that was my thing. Like, okay, here I am. I'm in, I'm in public and I want to be this great dad. And then everybody, my whole family was calling me on this. Like you are, you saying you're this good dad. What, where is this? And I was like, yeah, you're right. And uh, we got on public, we got on TV and the whole thing. And I, we, we did a uh, thing in the counselor's office. And I remember we we, tra- we talked about some things that were light. But my wife was in there crying about things that really happened. Mm-hmm. And we were yeah. on TV and it was it was really, really deep. You know, and you know what? And it, to be honest, it prepared me for being public now. You know what I'm saying? That makes sense, yeah. It, it does. It's kind of like, wow, you know, people can see it. What has it been like as a father 
to be such a public figure. There's so many people who know your story now and you are raising kids in an environment that is not always the most welcoming to, to black and brown people. How have you found talking with your kids about this, about not only your situation, but about the larger context that we're in? Wow. We, you know, we sit around, we sit around the table and we talk about everything. You know, I, I wrote a book called Manhood in 2014, which dealt with a lot of toxic masculinity issues um, because I was a card-carrying member of this thing. You know, for years, I felt that I was more valuable than my wife and kids simply because I was the man of the house, you know? And um, I was, like I said, I never I never physically abused my family, but I could, I could definitely say it was verbal abuse. And it was a lot of this my way or the highway mentality. And, mm. you know, and then my wife, in around 2010, she was like, I'm out. Oh, and, wow. and there I was, I'm a successful man. You know, I mean, like very successful at the time. People were like, man, you're doing this, you're doing that. And my whole mentality was like, okay, go ahead. Bye. You know, I'll just find a new one. And my family went through a major upheaval. Like the whole, all the kids, they knew what was happening. And then all of a sudden there's a little voice that said, hey, man, maybe it's me. Maybe, maybe she is right. And I was like, no, it couldn't be, couldn't be. No, no, because, you know, Jerry Cruz is, is looked up and, and everybody admires me. Everybody says he's great and everybody says I'm great. But the problem is, is that that was an image that wasn't true. And I sit down with my kids and had to sit down with my kids over the years. I mean, right after that incident, but many, many times since then. And just be honest and apologize, but also be honest about who I am and what I am and the experiences that I had. So when this happened, it was like, they were like, dad, what is up? And I was like, this man grabbed me, you know? And this is, we were talking about this stuff when it happened. What did they ask you? What what were their questions? You know, a lot, it's, it's funny because kids tend to, at the time, don't ask questions. Mm -hmm. You know, they just kind of, they're taking it in, you know what I mean? But then, I have had, you know, like my daughters come up and say, you know, did you, did you, how did you feel about, you know, going public? And I, because my big thing was I asked them, like, is this affecting you in school? Is like, are people coming up saying strange things? And what's wild is that, you know, they surprisingly are, are getting support. Yo, They're getting, you know, you know what I mean? Because I think people knew, you know, like people knew Hollywood was this way. <laughs> you know, right. it's like we can't, you can try to deny it and try to hide it. And, but even Harvey Weinstein, the, the number one predator of all time was like, everybody does this. Right. You know, that's what his, that was his, in, in his defense, he's trying to defend himself. And he says, everyone does this. And um, so my big, big thing was to tell my kids that if anyone was to ever, ever, ever make you feel uncomfortable, to ever make you feel less than, to ever touch you where you do not want to be touched, tell, tell someone. And I, what kind of person would I be to not do, to not tell if it happened to me? You know what I mean? I, I'd just be part of the the image thing. You know what I mean? And um, so we talked about this stuff when Trayvon Martin got killed. Um, you know, I have one son, 
but it could easily be. I remember when there was a young black lady who was killed in the Korean grocery store, who basically shot in the back of the head as she walked out mm-hmm. um, and faced no charges. You know, so this could easily be my daughter as well. Or Sandra and, Bland. Or- yes. Oh, my God. Just there's so every time it comes up in the news, there's so many names. You just tell I tell my kids all the time, all the time. Be first of all, be polite. I said, hold your anger because it will be used against you. It will. Any Anything you do in an angry state, I said, you can get mad, but you have to control it. Now, when we talk about controlling our anger, you have talked before about growing up in a home where your father's anger manifested itself uh, physically violently. Yes. How has that influenced the way that you process your own, like the way your anger manifests? How does how does that experience, if at all, like influence the way that you process the way your anger manifests today? You got to understand, um, I I beat up a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, in my life, you're talking about, you know, growing up in the hood and, and this kind of stuff. I got a lot of fights. But what you realize is that you're damaged. When you grow up in a house, whether I remember my first, one of my earliest memories is watching my mother um, get hit in the face by my giant father. Um, I realized, whoa, okay, he just knocked her out and he says he loves her. What's he going to do to me? Right. So my whole mentality was like, all right, it's kill or be killed. So I walked around with chips and on my shoulders and this kind of thing. And I knew who I, what I looked like. I knew I could be a threat. And there were times when I had to use it. And then you start to realize, like, you can't, like, as you get older, you start to say, man, I can't fight everybody. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, and it's weird, and I'm thankful because I always prided myself, like, I'll never hit my wife. I'll never hit, you know, my kids, never abuse them, never do anything like that. But again, but it, but there's another switch, which is just as bad as the verbal stuff. You know what I mean? Where I, where I would I remember this is this is what I think is just as bad as being a you know physical abuse. Is I remember not talking to my wife for like two weeks. That was a punishment. She would say something I didn't like, and so I would hit her with silence. Man, that's cold. Like. I, I try to bust this bubble because everybody, you know, there are people like, man, Terry is so cool, man. I, I was, I could have been, I probably was the one of the biggest jerks you ever, ever hmm. seen. But, but what happened was, I, in public, I could be really cool and, oh man, and this is great and hey guys, but, but I'd be all, I'd have these, I'd already be kind of thinking of a way to, to overcome or, or, or to beat you in some kind of way. I was really duplicitous. How did you and, heal with her? Man, you got to, first of all, she left. <laughs> That's, she was like, and yeah, I'm she here. was like, hey, yeah, right. And, you know, let me tell you something, man. And I, it's just the most, it's it's the most eye opening thing ever is that when I tell women all the time, you know, women who face this kind of stuff, is that leaving is your protection. You know, don't ever feel bad about having to go ever because he may get it, he may not. But you don't have to stick around and wait for his decision. You know, and she, my wife is so strong and so amazing that she said, I'm out. I have to protect me 
and myself, and I'm done. Did the kids go too? Oh, yeah. And uh, I had instantly I had no family, Hmm. you know, and the feeling of like, you know, wow, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? And then the realization that it was me. That's that's the thing, because at first you feel like, man, you know, she didn't get it. You know, I mean, you know, and look at me. Here I am. I'm about to join the ranks of the divorce. So, you know, happens to have the marriages. It's it's normal. (laughs) You start, you know, you start to, yeah, you start to justify yourself. And, well, I'm not that bad. I never, look, I never hit you. (laughs) You know what I mean? You can say all these great things like, oh, man, you know, you start to pump up who you are in your own head. But, dude, I knew who I was. I knew I didn't do right. You know how you know, you could tell people you never lie. I ain't lie, I didn't lie, but you know you're lying. Right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's, that's the thing. It's like, and I had to, once you sit alone by yourself and you have time to think and you say, man, what am I doing? And let me tell you, I revamped my whole life. I had an addiction to pornography. I wrote about it in my book and in, in, in manhood and the whole thing. And and I realized that that was affecting me and, and the way that I saw people and women and and the way I felt like people were objects. And, and I was like, man, I got to revamp my life. Like, I went to rehab for this stuff, man. And I remember the first day I went there, I was like, this is all wrong. I am not supposed to be here. I'm like, not one oh. of those people. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I am not that dude. Come on, man. What? And then by the time, because it was an intensive where you sat for like, you know, 10 hours and by the eighth hour, I was like, this is me. This is me. What part of the recovery process? So both of my parents were addicted to drugs. My father raised us. My mother left when I was three. Yeah. And he uh, he talks a lot about the power of recovery and the process. I'd love to know for you, what part of the recovery process was the part that, that like, d- that you did the most work in? Was it doing an inventory of the people you'd harmed? Was it sort of having to sit with the reality of the of the things you had done? Was it like hearing feedback about like, what was, what part of the recovery process was, or what parts, maybe there more than one, like really moved you? Well, you know, um, man, like I said, it's recovery just keeps going. You know what I mean? It's one of those things you, you, whatever that's happened, whatever you need to do today is probably the most valuable thing. Um, but for me, like you said, the, the, the recount of the people you harmed Hmm. when you have to make, you know, you have to write this stuff down. And I remember writing it out. You know, you have to write a letter to the people you harmed. And and, and you when you see it in print, man, whew. And let me tell you, it was wild. I'm going to tell this. This is so crazy. I was sitting in Hawaii. We were in Hawaii literally for my birthday. And my wife and I went to dinner alone. And she reminded me of something that I did that I had that. I I had forgot I did like it was a it was a cringeworthy incident that I was like no I didn't do that she was like yes you did and I said I'm so sorry I said that must have been so humiliating and she just said it was and she sat there in tears. And then she went to the bathroom for about 20 minutes. It was so wild. It was weird because the waiters were like, is she coming back? You like, you know what, what I mean? is happening? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what? I knew to sit in the moment. Just sit in it. Don't run. Don't hide. Acknowledge. This is the pain that you caused. 
And she came back to the table, and she and she it was no yelling, it was no screaming, it was just quiet. It was, and she said, "We're good now, babe." And I said, "Yes, we are." And we finished our meal. Like it was, it was watching the process go from one to the next, like watching us process yet another small thing, but clear it out, like clean it, not only get it out of the way, but clean out what was, what was damaged. And we were healed. You know what I'm saying? Like every incident. And this is the thing where the the valuable part of recovery, I never will walk around and say, I know everything. Mm -hmm. I know, I know, I don't know. I have no idea. But I'm looking. I'm looking for answers. I, actually, I like to say that I'm really just about bringing up more questions because the questions help you see, get, help you go through. Because like I ask my kids, how was I? And they tell me honestly. And you, and you have to sit there and you have to hear it. And that's a part of my recovery. If you have to hear how bad you were. How how is the healing process different with uh, your children than your wife, or, or were they similar processes? Um, I would say they were very similar, just very very similar. I mean, pain is pain, um, but the key is is just finding out how you hurt them. I read an interview where you talked about that you actually fought your father back once, and it didn't feel like you thought it would feel. Listen, I beat my father to a pulp. And this is back in, it was about 2000. And it was a Christmas from hell. And I, me and my wife were out doing our thing. And I got a call from my aunt. And she's like, oh, my God, your daddy hit your mom again. He hit her and knocked her tooth sideways. It was, <clears throat> it was awful. And I told everybody, get out the house. And I said, I'm, I, you know, they took all the kids, everyone out, and they went to my aunt's house, and it was me and him. And I beat his ass probably for an hour and a half. Oh, wow. And he was pleading. He was pleading for his life. He was, And let me tell you, this was the, it was for the years that I witnessed him doing all this stuff, for years of all the pain that we had been through, for the years of all the stuff, the, the, the scared moments. Listen, I peed in the bed since I was 14 years old because I, I didn't know. We wake up to the glass breaking, police fighting. You know what I mean? I'm I'm eight, and I'm like, what is happening? You know? So I, I had I had so much pent-up, like, revenge in my head that I took it out. And let me tell you, man, I didn't feel one bit better. Not one iota. He was laying there, and I was like, it didn't work. I'm in tears. I'm like, look at me. I'm just, I said, I went down to his level. I went there. And I'm like, this is no good. I knew at that moment that I had to use my muscle for good. I realized that this is stronger. Like, love is stronger. Now, do you have any advice for for parents about how they can talk to, especially parents of color, about how they can talk to their boys about these issues of, of, of toxic masculinity, of healthy masculinity about assault. And, you know, you and I both have been to a million barbershops. You probably spend less time in barbershops now, (laughs) 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 but you know that the barbershop conversation isn't always the most healthy uh, place for us to learn about who we are as black men. So 
wanted to know, like, how do you help people talk about this stuff or oh, give wow. them language? You know what? I found most of my mistakes were made when I was with the wrong crowd. You can really tell what's happening to your kids by who they hang around. Where are they getting their messages? And my best advice to all parents is it's really teach your kids how to be independent. And when I tell my, what I tell my kids is that you are not above anyone. No one. No one is beneath you either. That's the line we have to play. Because we have this, this whole culture where I'm either below or I'm above. But the truth is, your worth, nothing can diminish your worth as a human being. And you constantly have to tell your kids that you are worth fighting for. You are never, ever, ever above anyone else, but you're never below anyone else either. Well, boom. Well, I know we've uh, we've hit an hour. I appreciate you being able to make time. I enjoyed our conversation and we consider you a friend of the pod. Oh, man, you guys are great. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. 